Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Over the course of the next several weeks, Sabin Russell will engage lab staff about the ins and outs and ups and downs of innovative science. But of course, as always, we, we also want to hear from you, so there'll be plenty of time for questions at the end of each talk. Uh, please wait for a microphone before you begin your question. Uh, one of the first questions that might be on your mind, which I'll answer now before handing the stage over to Sabin, is who is Sabin Russell? Uh, Sabin joined Berkeley Lab last year after a long career as a Bay Area health and science reporter, including 22 years at the San Francisco Chronicle, freelance work for the New York Times, as well as, well as a night science journal journalism fellowship at MIT. He's uh, best known for his coverage of HIV in the U.S. and Africa, uh, but he's also covered a, a wide range of topics, including the Columbia shuttle disaster, as well as the tsunami in Sri Lanka. He is now the lead editor and writer for the Creative Services Office, which is a public affairs unit that writes, edits, and produces documents for the entire lab. So I will now hand the stage over to Sabin and for our first uh, installment of Sit Down with Sabin. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, and, and thank, you, uh, thank you all for coming today. This is uh, a bit of an experiment. Um, we hope uh, you'll find it uh, entertaining as well as interesting. Uh, as somebody who is new to the lab, uh, one of the things that struck me almost immediately and still strikes me today is um, the diversity of science that's pursued in this, in this institution. Uh, you can go to the... Uh, a molecular foundry at one end uh, where they're talking in nanometers and you can go down the hall where they talk in, in megaparsecs and uh, at the ALS they have uh, they have x-ray beams uh, as thin as a hair that ha are a billion times as bright as the sun and then you go over to building 90 and there are people there who are figuring out how to paint roofs white and put coatings on windows uh, and uh, maybe save the, save the world in that fashion. Um, and that just scratches the surface of, of how interesting and diverse a place this is. So um, one of the other purposes of this is, is that we have a, a, a broad diversity of people working at the lab. We also have uh, student interns working here. We have high school students in the audience. Um, we have uh, college interns, we have postdocs, and we have staff scientists. So uh, the purpose of this particular conversational style is to maybe dial down the science a little bit and uh, present it in a way without PowerPoints, uh, relying on our own, uh, our own words and a conversational style to make some of the work uh, that, we're, that various people are doing here more accessible to all of us. And, um, perhaps in a little more relaxing fashion than the kind of uh, academic lecture format that we do as a regular part of our, our jobs here. So um, since we're dialing down the science, um, I, I couldn't think of anything that's more of a, of a, a no-brainer in kindergarten science than, than, than dark energy and the ultimate uh, origin and ultimate fate of the universe. So. Um, with that, with that uh, introduction, we have, we have uh, one of the best people I know to talk about that subject in a conversational style, uh, David Schlegel. Uh, he's a senior scientist with the physics department at, at Berkeley Lab. Uh, he is the principal investigator 
for a project called BOSS and a forthcoming project called Big BOSS that we'll be talking about quite a bit in this session. Um, the session is called The Hunt for Dark Energy, and here we have uh, a hunter for dark energy. Uh, he got his um, uh, BA from Princeton, his PhD from Cal. He's been working at the lab. He's a senior scientist. He's been working at the lab since 2004. So I'm very pleased to introduce David Schlegel. So, so our topic, uh, David, is, is, uh, is the hunt for dark energy. We'll be using the term dark energy a lot throughout this uh, conversation and getting into more and more detail over time. But uh, I think that just because there is a diverse group of people here, let's just start right out with the basic question of, of what is dark energy, why is it dark, and why are you hunting for it? Okay. <clears throat> Some good kindergarten questions there. Um, well, let me, let me just step back for a moment here and just put a little bit of uh, historical context here, which is uh, just to start by saying that right now in cosmology, so the, the study of the cosmos, we really are at a time of maximum ignorance. So I, I, I think it's the case that there is no time previously in history where uh, we knew there was so little that we knew. No. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you can go back to previous times where maybe our worldview was incomplete or wrong. There was this view going back millennia that uh, there was this crystalline sphere uh, that the Earth was in the middle of with the stars and the planets implanted on other crystalline spheres uh, orbiting the Earth. And, okay, maybe that wasn't right, uh, but it was kind of a complete view of what the cosmos looked like. Okay, so then jumping forward a few thousand years, um, we did have the Big Bang figured out uh, at some time in the, the middle of the 20th century uh, uh, as the formation of the universe from the Big Bang. Um, but then more recently, in recent decades, uh, what we've discovered are just the big pieces of the energy density of the universe that we're missing. Okay, so one of the big pieces that's missing is dark matter, which we're not going to talk about very much today, but, but it's worth mentioning because it actually outnumbers normal matter in the universe. So uh, uh, you look around you, everything that we're sitting on, these are made out of uh, protons, neutrons, uh, so baryonic particles, which we know now is only about 4% of the energy density of the universe. And there's a dark matter, which are particles that uh, exert gravity like normal matter, but uh, is six times more abundant than uh, protons and neutrons. Okay, so that was one of the first pieces here. I'll, I'll and, get somewhere. And, and, and you're talking about this famous pie chart that we now have of, of the energy density of the universe. 25%, uh, roughly 25% uh, is considered to be dark matter. Roughly 5%, the uh, baryonic matter that uh, makes up what we see here and what we see when we look up in the sky. And then close to 72% of the universe is, is dark energy. Um, and why, if there's something that big out there, do we need to look for it? Because it's there. Um, so this, is, this was the new piece that no one was expecting. I mean, I think it's fair to say no one was expecting dark matter in the first place. I mean, that's weird. 
and then dark energy. This is something that was it was only discovered in 1998. Uh, right here. Right here at, at Berkeley Labs, this is a, a group led by Saul Perlmutter, and uh, there was another competing group at the same time. So it was discovered completely observationally, uh, and it was discovered um, uh, by trying to map out something that we already knew, but we didn't actually know at all. Okay, and this was uh, looking at the expansion history of the universe. So it's it was supposed to be a straightforward experiment that would kind of return the answer that we knew, that we didn't know. It, it was to see whether the universe, how fast the universe is slowing down, basically. Was that, right. was that more or less the goal of the experiment? And, and instead, the experiment found in 1998 that the universe is not only is expanding, but that expansion is accelerating, which in the world of physics is a little bit equivalent to um, tossing this bottle up in the air and seeing it continue to, to rise and, and accelerate even faster, it seems to violate the, the laws of physics that are, that, that at least that I know. And, um, and I understand that the term dark energy is basically a placeholder term for what we don't know. Dark energy isn't necessarily energy. It, 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 it isn't necessarily, it, 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 we have no concept we have, we have, well, we do have a concept of what it is, and that's, that's really what we're going to be talking about further. There are several theories, but any one of those theories um, makes a mincemeat of, of, of some of the fundamental laws of physics as we've known them. Um, or am I overstating the case? No, I think that's fair. I mean, we, we, the, so the term dark energy, it, it was coined to really describe uh, this observation that we don't understand, and so the observation of the universe having so it, it was decelerating for about seven billion years. So you had the Big Bang, uh, everything seemed to obey the laws of physics for the first half of the age of the universe, in that everything attracts everything else. So there's uh, through gravitation, and so that slows down this expansion, uh, and it was slowing down for about seven billion years. And then about seven billion years ago, everything started flying apart even faster. And then you can ask yourself, what could account for that? And one way to account for that is to say that there's an energy term uh, innate everywhere in the universe where once uh, the universe becomes diffuse enough from its own expansion, then this energy term becomes dominant and actually dominates the expansion. So we're, we're talking about a force that unlike the attraction of gravity, is kind of a repulsive force that seems to be causing the universe to run away from itself. Uh, not so long ago, uh, an author, Richard uh, Panic, uh, was standing right at this very spot uh, talking about his new book, The 4% Universe. And in it, he talked about how uh, there was a moment in 1610 when um, Galileo first invented the telescope and started to re discover that there were things about the world that, that were accepted that, uh, that uh, there were things we did not know about in the world and, and with this instrument, new things were revealed and it certainly changed the way uh, the world was viewed. And he, that instrument being the telescope. That instrument being the telescope. And, and Panic is making the point that he feels that at this moment we may be, in a sense, reliving 1610, 
he, he feels that, that these discoveries of, of an accelerating universe of dark matter are so significant that, that, that this pie chart that shows 72% of the universe is, is composed of dark energy are so sig significant that we are reliving 1610. Now, would you agree with that in terms of a paradigm shift? I, I think so. I think some of us think that. So there's, um, uh, I mean, I should say there, there are different, differing opinions on this. So there's, um, there's also within just the field of kind of astronomy and physics, I, I think there are some people who think, well, um, you could actually explain this phenomenon of, of dark energy with a simple cosmological constant, which is, so it's one possible explanation for uh, dark energy that's kind of the simplest modifications you could make. This is, this is the cosmological constant first posed by Einstein uh, right. and then later rejected by him as his biggest mistake, supposedly. Yeah, so this was something, um, so just to go into history here, this was uh, uh, when Einstein figured out general relativity, which is also an interesting story. Um, what he found was the universe wanted to be dynamic. It wanted to uh, expand or contract. I mean, you have all this gravity acting on everything. Uh, but we knew that the universe was static at the time, that uh, it'd be crazy to have a Big Bang. So he had to do something to fix that. Mm -hmm. And so to fix that, he put in this term that would uh, exactly balance the uh, expansion contraction of the universe that you'd, or the contraction that you'd want from gravity. Uh, you know, if, if Einstein hadn't done that, maybe he'd be famous today. But, <laughs> so, so the National Research Council laid out um, 11 scientific questions for the 21st century and said that the, determining the nature of dark energy was the most vexing of those 11 uh, phys uh, physics challenges for the 21st century. And this is essentially what you do. Um, you are a dark energy hunter. So, uh, you know, some hunters have, uh, have bows and arrows. Um, what, 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 is your, what is your weapon? What is your instrument for discovering dark energy? Um, so all we have is the universe to look at. Um, the, uh, but the, what we're doing is trying to chip away at uh, either pieces that don't fit or where we think we might be able to find a clue. And unfortunately for dark energy, there aren't a lot of clues yet. Okay, mm -hmm. so the, um, uh, but there might be more than one, which is also another debatable point. But the, the, the evidence that we have right now is this accelerating expansion uh, that was discovered in 1998. Um, so we've seen this now from lots more observations in the past decade. Uh, and we've confirmed this many times over that, in fact, the universe is doing this today. Um, so that's uh, a measurable that we can go after, what th this expansion history of the universe. So as a function of time, how big was the universe? So that's the first piece that we can go after. I think the hope is that... Uh, uh, this whole notion of dark energy or whatever it is or whatever we're calling it 10 years from now after we figure it out or 20 years or 50 years is that or one year, I don't know 
uh, uh, let's be optimistic, is that this might fit in with some other pieces that are also as yet to be understood. So, so as I understand it, what you are basically doing is trying to create a three-dimensional map of the universe and, and use that, that map as a tool to understand the, the behavior of, of dark energy over the course of, what, uh, 13 billion years. And, and uh, so essentially, uh, your method of, of uh, zeroing in on the behavioral characteristics of dark energy is to build this three-dimensional map. And in order to do that, this gets us into um, the telescope and the instruments that you're involved in, the boss and the big boss projects. And so uh, to describe what I think is extremely interesting, um, the actual instruments that you're using and why you're using them, why don't you show us what you brought? Okay, okay. Um, so let me just start with uh, what you're saying is the, the measurements we make, they're geometrical measurements of what the universe looks like. So that's, that's the tool that we have. Uh, and then getting a little more physical here, this is, um, this could be many things, but what this is, <laughs> Well, one thing this could be when we'll I... We'll be serving pizza uh, there we go. <laughs> after the event. So the thing I think of when I look at this, by the way, is, is uh, uh, this is also a pretty good model of what the Milky Way galaxy looks like. So to digress for a minute here, uh, we are lucky where we live in the universe in that uh, uh, we do live in this Milky Way galaxy. It's this thin array of uh, stars and dust. Um, and we don't live in the center, which is very lucky. Uh, there are lots of stars in the center. There are probably lots of uh, planets in the center. But if you lived in the center of the Milky Way, you wouldn't actually see outside the Milky Way at all. And we wouldn't be having this discussion for maybe a million years. I don't know. You'd, you'd have to actually get out of the Milky Way to actually observe anything. So anyway, sorry. That's just thought-provoking when I look at these plates. This is a man who knows a lot about galaxies. Um, so what this plate is, so we're making a map of the universe where uh, what we're making is a three-dimensional map of the universe where, uh, and it's a hard thing to do. When you look up at the sky, you see, uh, you see the planets, you see the stars, you see other galaxies, and actually when you just look, even if you look with the telescope, it's not obvious what's nearby and what's far away. So you could have a, a, a very bright galaxy uh, but you don't know whether that's a, a giant galaxy that's very far away or a small galaxy that happens to be close. And uh, essentially, we deal right now with, with two-dimensional pictures uh, of the universe, uh, like the Hubble Deep Field pictures that many of you have seen, where we see, we, we see that the universe is just absolutely chock full of galaxies. I think that was kind of a new idea in the last 30 years or so, I, uh, that not only do we, ha are, do we have some neighboring galaxies, but there are, what, 100, 100 billion galaxies? There are many galaxies in the universe as there are stars in the Milky Way. And that this device right here is a way of measuring, of, of zeroing in, of scanning the sky, a piece of the sky, right? Mm -hmm. and, and measuring through each of these dots the redshift, which is a a kind of a Doppler-like effect uh, to determine how far away those galaxies are. And, and uh, so w 
those, is this visible to people way in the back of the room? Can you see that this thing is, is full of holes? And, and each one of those holes is what? Uh, so these are, um, so uh, what we do is, so this is uh, something that goes in the back of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey Telescope. That's in, in New Mexico? In New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And every observation we make, every hour, we have one of these plates manufactured. We have thousands of these now. Um, they're heavy. Uh, very precision machined aluminum, uh, extremely flat, apparently. Um, uh, and everywhere we're going to point on the sky, we already have a two-dimensional map of where all the galaxies are. And so we say, OK, we're going to be pointing here for the next hour. We need a plate uh, where we drill a hole at the location of each galaxy that we want to observe. Uh, so this plate goes on the back of the telescope. And then there's a guy who actually takes how about my other prop here. Uh, these are fiber optics, uh, just like you find, well, anywhere now. Uh, and there's someone who actually, before we start observing for the night, takes all these and plugs them into these, all these holes on the back of the plate. So you have to plug every one of these holes with a fiber optic cable to, to read an individual redshift for an individual galaxy. Yeah, so it's an interesting mix of uh, technology from switchboards in 1900 <laughs> um, and then some 21st century technology, right? So, so rather than uh, wire, right, these are fiber optics, and then these lead down to an instrument that has CCDs on the back of it. So, so you've got the lens of the telescope out here somewhere. It's projecting the image of a piece of the sky. About how, how much of the sky does this thing uh, scan at, at one moment? Um, so this telescope was it was designed to survey as much of the sky as possible, and that's what's unique about this telescope. So it can see a field of view. It's three degrees across, which is... Uh, How's that compared to, say, the, the, the width of the moon, a full moon? So the, the moon is half a degree across. So it's much bigger okay. than the full moon. So this is, this is a fairly large chunk of sky. And then if you, you compare it to Hubble, the Hubble telescope, it's a great telescope being in space... Uh, uh, and above the Earth's atmosphere, but it, it has a much smaller field of view that's, that's the equivalent of taking a soda straw that's eight feet long and looking through it. So you, you could use the Hubble to survey the whole sky, but it would take something like 400,000 years. So, so this thing has been precision machined. Every hole represents a, a galaxy. I, I, I can hold this very still, and I can see the earring in the, in the ear of the woman up there. So, so this is pretty amazing tool. Um, it's not supposed to magnify. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and and so how many how many got this is this is the Boss project, correct? Yeah. So the Bo the Boss project. So well, this uh, telescope actually began operations in 1998. So coincidentally, uh, it might even be to the month that uh, dark energy was discovered. That's when this telescope turned on. Uh, and then we didn't know about dark energy at the time, so it wasn't designed to do that at all. So what the Sloan project started to do was it, it first did this uh, program for eight years of mapping. It was the brightest one million galaxies on the sky. Um, and so it completed that project in uh, uh, about 2000, 2008. But we've retooled this telescope and instrument now to actually look at a much, much larger volume of the universe 
And so now we're looking at another million and a half galaxies that span about halfway across the universe. So we're talking about a survey that will map the distances of uh, a total of, I guess, uh, three, three and a half million galaxies when it's done? Uh, two, two and a half. Two and a half, two and a half million. I'm, not, I'm an English major, so please forgive me. But uh, Okay, two and a half million galaxies will know how far away they are and, and stretching back uh, eight billion years. And, uh, and then um, when this project is completed, um, there is the project called Big Boss, which is, I would presume, a bigger version of Boss. Um, tell us a little bit about that project and, and, and its goals. Right. So these, uh, so these projects, of course, take many years to, to build at the same time. The, uh, the BOSS project on Sloan right now, so we are making this, it, you know, it looks like a very ambitious map of two and a half million galaxies then out uh, uh, six billion light years. The problem is it still doesn't actually get out to that uh, time in the universe when we think the universe went from being decelerating to accelerating. So that's inferred from... So some sort of very important transition period in the history of the universe, and this one really can't, can't do the job. Right. It might be. Again, we don't really know. So, so Big Boss, as I understand it, its five-year goal is 20 million galaxies? That's right. So, uh, so about an order of magnitude more than what, we're, what we'll have completed with Sloan several years from now. And, and I understand that the, the, the device for, for Big Boss, it would be outfitted on the, the Mayall telescope, which is at Kitt Peak in, in Arizona. And it will be um, surveying uh, five, five how many holes are in this one? Uh, so this has 1,000 holes. This has 1,000 holes. We're going to a 5,000 hole uh, instrument uh, that will be capable of... Um, of uh, surveying how, how many galaxies uh, and, and celestial objects in a single in a single day, a single night, I should. Yeah, usually at night. Yeah, uh, at night. Good point. Uh, so, so it, it would be about two hundred thousand in a clear night. 200,000 celestial objects will be measured. We'll know how far away they are. So somewhere there's got to be a very large computer. Um, uh, uh, gobbling up this information that, that, that you're going to be generating. It's downstairs here right now. It's downstairs. Uh, Everything seems to be at Berkeley Lab. Um, and uh, what about the poor guy who has to put in, who has to put in 5,000 of these things? Yep, so his name is Norm Blythe. He's retired. Uh, we've actually we've replaced him with its, its five other people doing the plugging operation today. Uh, but it, so we, we don't think that manually, you know, plugging holes five, well, 200,000 in a night is actually the answer uh, when we start this next project. So the, the replacement, so finally, uh, we think we'll be replacing this plug plate kind of design with a, a robotic system. So what we're designing right now, um, it's a focal plane, so focal plane meaning where everything comes into focus on the back of a telescope. So on this focal plane, rather than a plug plate, will be uh, a machine actually with uh, so 5,000 little robots, each with two motors, 
driving around fiber optics. So, so these fiber optic cables, these 5,000 fiber optic cables will all be in place and will use computers and, and actuators of some kind to actually point the, um, uh, the fiber optic cable to the target. And you'll, you'll be scanning, what, uh, a piece of the sky every 15 minutes? Right, that's the plan. That's yeah. amazing. So, so this, this amazing intro, how much is this thing going to cost? Are we being recorded here? <laughs> uh, so the, the construction budget for this is about $70 million, uh, And then you have to operate the telescope, which, uh, I mean, there's an expense to operating any of mm-hmm. these telescopes. Um, but the other way to look at this, or the way I choose to look at this, is, is you can try to do projects like this with space missions as well, which have some advantages. Uh, they also can blow up. They could blow up. They're also expensive, so um, a lot more expensive. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is the uh, the cheap method of getting uh, a a three dimensional map of the universe. And well, well and, it, and it turns out you uh, you don't you don't need anything too exotic to actually make these maps. You uh, you really just need this sort of technology multiplexed. So this is really taking advantage of. Fiber optics, CCDs, uh, all, all of all of the things that we, we kind of take for granted today. Mm-hmm. So, so these are the tools. The goal is a three-dimensional map of the universe, and with that three-dimensional map of the universe, we're going to find something about the way dark energy uh, exerted its influence on the expansion of the universe over a period of perhaps eight billion years. Um, so, in a sense, it's, it's dark energy from maps. Um, I know that we've, we've talked about dark energy as one of the most vexing problems. There are multiple theories about what dark energy could be. Can, can you describe a, a couple of examples, theory A and theory B, and how and what you would expect to find using your, with your three-dimensional map that might lead you to either rule in or rule out those options? Not very well, but I can try. <laughs> uh, so uh, there, there are more expert theorists on this than, than me, for sure. But, um, uh, but so one of the ideas here is, is that you could add this, uh, we talked about this earlier, this cosmological constant to Einstein's theories of relativity uh, uh, to kind of uh, balance those equations and, and put in um, this extra term that could explain the expansion history that we're seeing. Is this sort of a mathematical explanation? Uh, it sort of is, and so even if it is this cosmological constant, it, uh, the, as, as a, the, the theorist would still be asking the question, well, what, what can actually cause this sort of effect? Um, and then, I don't know, there are all sorts of I don't want to say crazy ideas, different ideas. Um, so some of them having to do with uh, interactions with the, the four-dimensional space that we live in, where this is the three space dimensions and one time dimension, with higher dimensionality um, uh, spaces that you know, maybe this four-dimensional universe lives in, and essentially interactions with those higher dimensions onto the, the mere four dimensions that we're living in. Well, for, okay, if you, have, if you have this expansion history of the universe, 
um, derived from the map. Um, is it conceivable that you would see that the universe as that it was expanding um, did it in, you know, in sort of a constant, uh, a, a constant curve that was sort of sloping gently as opposed to maybe something in a staccato fashion where it moved in fits and starts? For instance, if it did move in sort of a staccato fashion, would that tell you something? Is that, does that fit any of the theories? Uh, maybe. I mean, the theory, <laughs> you just have to come out with the measurement, and even if it's wrong, you get the, the theory papers the next day. Um, I'm being too hard on someone. Um, uh, but right now, we are inferring the expansion history from kind of a couple endpoints. So from some measurements in the very early universe, and then some measurements in the more local universe. And then we're projecting this line between them. And that's where we really don't have a lot of data. Mm -hmm. So you can say the data all fits when, OK, here's a data point over here. Here's another data point over here. I can draw a line through there and, and look, it fits those two points. Um, but that's not really satisfying enough. So it's not, it's not even testing very well this idea of even the, this cosmological constant notion. And then it could be something much more um, interesting and dynamic than that. And that I, mean, I mean, it could be that something has happened more interesting as a function of time between these two endpoints. Uh, or uh, it could be a, a field. So one of the terms that's bad around are quintessence fields, which are um, some sort of field that might actually vary in space as well, so that you might actually see something different when you look over here than when you look over here. And if you saw that, wow, that would be a big clue. So, so if, if quintessence, for instance, was, was the explanation for dark energy, would quintessence leave a, a kind of a footprint on that, on that three-dimensional map of the universe? Would it, would it be a signal that you could detect? Uh, so potentially, yes. But it, it's, uh, uh, I mean, right now, I, I think uh, the theorists are waiting for any sort of observations to, to really guide explanations right now. But it, it, it sort of brings me back to this idea of Galileo. We have this instrument, and it's, it's going to reveal a tremendous amount about the universe that we don't know today. It will really sort of literally lay out the picture for us. But the reality is that I'm sort of picking up here, we don't really know what we're going to find out. I mean, this is, this is exploration in its purest form in some respects. And, and uh, you know, I find that exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think we know. And I think our hope is that we'll learn something that will tie back to other uh, pieces of the puzzle that aren't explained yet. So, um, uh, you know, there, there is this whole other missing chunk of the universe, the dark matter. Is there any relation between dark energy and dark matter? I mean, people don't think so, but uh, we haven't found either yet, really, mm -hmm. um, uh, except very indirectly. And then the other piece that, that I guess I'm sort of secretly hoping might fit together here is uh, there is this unexplained phenomena from the very early universe uh, which the observable here is, as you look around in the universe, it looks like, basically, as far as we can tell, there are stars and galaxies and all these clumpy things around the universe. 
But really, the universe, it's pretty uniform. It's homogenous wherever you look. And so uh, you can uh, even make these maps of the very early universe, the microwave background, where you see the universe was very smooth uh, to about a part in a million, which um, is not really naturally described by anything. So uh, uh, there was what I'd call a cheat that was put in, which is uh, this inflation theory. Um, So this is just another piece of kind of our standard model of cosmology was that, okay, there was the Big Bang, uh, and then uh, the universe that would have been very lumpy, but then we're going to say, actually, let's put in a period of uh, inflation, so so very rapid expansion of the universe uh, in the first instance of the universe, um, where we could expand the universe so much uh, that then the little piece that we're living in is uniform. And so, you know, that works. Uh, and you sweep that under the rug, and like, okay, that's done. We've explained that piece, okay? So that's why the universe is uniform. And then, then you move on. Oh, and then 8 billion years later, we have this other phenomena happening, which is also some inflationary thing in the universe. So those are two pieces that, uh, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if there's some, something related between those. The phenomena, in some ways, is similar. Mm-hmm. We, um, we have time for questions as well from the, from the audience. And we have, we have runners here, I think, who have microphones. Um, if anybody uh, has a question uh, for David, um, this, we, could, we could start that process now, or we can also continue our discussion. Um, does anybody, uh, anybody have a question for David? There we go. There's always one at Berkeley Lab who kicks it off. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about what you have at the other end of your fiber optics? Do you have a 1,000 actual spectrometers there, or are you just measuring intensity? What's in that little black thing there at the end of the fiber optics? Yes. What's in there? Okay. Um, so what this does, uh, so, so it is spectrometers. So the way to measure uh, the redshift, the Doppler shift of a galaxy is to split its light with something like a prism so that you can get the full, you can divide the light into all of its wavelengths and then from that infer the velocities of, of galaxies. Uh, what we do here is you don't, you could have a thousand spectrographs on, on the back end here. Uh, that'd be rather expensive because we're talking about instruments where we're trying to get efficiencies very close to 100%, meaning that every single photon that hits the device, we want to detect it. Um, so the instruments, they're you know, pretty, pretty expensive state of the art. But what we can do is with these fibers, um, uh, uh, we take these fibers, they're plugged in everywhere on this focal plane, and then they all come out bunched together uh, into a much smaller region. So uh, uh, on, the, on the back of all these fibers then is just a row of fibers that's just some number of inches long. And then that's what we feed into an instrument. And what that means is we have a, a spectrometer on the back of this, or uh, two spectrometers, where the optics are only about this big. So it's a pretty modest-sized instrument. Uh, so you, you could build a spectrometer on the back of this entire focal plate, uh, but that in of itself would probably be 
$50 million or something. I don't know what it would cost. Maybe it's not even buildable. Another question? Right in the center here. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask, uh, you mentioned that maybe after the first seven billion years of the universe, the uh, was, universe was expanding, but it was... Uh, uh, but slowing down. Slowing down, yep. right. So, uh, so if you look out into the universe and you look far away, you're going to see uh, slowing down. And then when you look closer, you're going to see the, the same effect but expanding. That's right. No, that, so that's, that's the observation that we have right now. So what we have, though, is we have the observations uh, of um, we have an, kind of an endpoint observation. We have an observation when the universe was exactly actually 380,000 years old. So there's this map of uh, the microwave background, which anyway, I could talk about, but, but we have that one measurement there. And then we have measurements in just the last uh, uh, six or eight billion years of the universe accelerating. So that's where we have data right now. So that early part, we don't actually have the data really showing the universe slowing down. Okay, and then you're, you're building a 3D model of the universe. Is that uh, just the visible part of the universe? I mean, my understanding is that we don't see the whole universe. Oh, we, we uh, so all, all we get to look at with these telescopes is uh, bright galaxies that have lots of stars. So that's what we're making maps of right now. Um, so uh, that's a you know, that's a tiny, tiny fraction of the universe. And uh, saying that that is honestly tracing where a material is in the universe, that, is, that does bring in some additional assumptions that, you've, um, that, that you're actually tracing where the matter is in the universe. We have a question from the man in the blue shirt. Uh, I was wondering if there are currently any experiments being done just on Earth that are looking to see what we can find out about dark matter, as well as what kind of techniques you guys are trying to use to figure out more about the properties of dark matter. Okay, uh, so dark matter, um, uh, so there are uh, ground-based, what we call direct detection experiments. Uh, so I, I don't... I'm not an expert on this, so I don't want to say too much about it, but um, uh, these are experiments of trying to see uh, uh, interaction events between um, dark matter particles and normal baryonic matter, where it's a challenging problem because by definition, what we know about dark matter is it doesn't really interact with normal matter. So any of those cross-sections between the two are very, very tiny. Uh, so those are experiments that are um, you know, looking for it's, it's kind of needle and haystack experiments of looking for these rare, very rare encounters between dark matter particles and normal matter particles and, and you can design these experiments to try to, uh, to, uh, to try to optimize that detection but I should say from uh, observations of the universe that is where we have the indirect detection of where dark matter is and what we can see is we can see its gravitational influence um, of uh, 
just the motions of galaxies. And so that's, um, that's really where dark matter was discovered in the first place, was just uh, how it's affecting the motions of galaxies. And uh, even in uh, just the last five years, we've actually learned a lot more about where the dark matter is, because what we can do is we can make uh, maps from the gravitational influence of dark matter uh, on material behind dark matter. And we, we are talking about dark matter rather than dark energy here, but um, coincidentally, wasn't, weren't some of the key experiments um, uh, looking at galaxy behavior and dark, uh, and, and dark matter done at the Mayall telescope um, uh, that you're going to be outfitting for this dark energy experiment? Yeah, so there's, uh, so I guess it's a, it's a small world in astronomy, maybe. So the, uh, um, so the, the real censure for knowing that there was dark matter was looking at the rotation of galaxies. And so this was done with a, largely uh, by Vera Rubin at the Mayall Telescope in Arizona, where she made these observations of, uh, so there are disk galaxies that look, look a lot like this, look a lot like around Milky Way. And what she inferred was, there must be a lot more material in these galaxies than just you would see from the stars and the dust because they're rotating so rapidly that they just would have blown themselves apart if there wasn't something else to hold them together, something else with gravitational force. Another question? I have a, I have just a, a kind of a personal question for you. Um, I mean, you have an extremely interesting job and an extremely interesting topic. I mean, how, how is it that... And there are a number of people here who are just starting out their careers and maybe uh, looking for what their interests are. What, what, what got you interested in this in this field? And and who were who are your mentors? Uh, let's see. <laughs> well, so, so I'll start by saying I, I, I'm not someone who, when I was six years old, looked up at the sky and said, "Oh, I'm going to be a, an astronomer." That, that's it. Um, so. So uh, you're doing this just for the money. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. <laughs> now I've lost my train of thought. Okay. But, what, is, what, what, what was the inspiration ultimately? Well, so, so I'll say a, a, a more recent inspiration for me has been working on uh, this particular project, so the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, where um, this particular project. I mean, this, this has really fired up everyone working on it because it's the first, uh, it's both the first digital map of the sky um, and then it's also the first big three-dimensional map of the sky that, that we've ever made, mm -hmm. human history has made. Uh, and so we're learning a lot from this. And it's, you know, it's much more than just uh, counting the butterflies. Uh, apologies to anyone who counts butterflies. <laughs> Um, the name of your, of your 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 program is BOSS. That stands for um, Baryon Acoustic Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey. Um, maybe this will take this a little deeper than than you or I might like. But uh, I'm just curious about Baryon Acoustic Oscillation because. You know, as I said, I'm an English major, and one of the things I know about science is that in space, nobody can hear you scream. So, so where does acoustic play in in this notion of of uh, 
the expansion history of the universe. Okay. Um, so to, to measure the effects of dark energy, the only tools that we have are uh, these geometric tools where we have to look at things where um, we either know how bright they are or how, uh, how large they are. And there aren't very many things in the cosmos that you can see out 10 billion light years and actually know that about. And so for galaxies in particular, you look at a picture of a galaxy, there's, there's no good reference to know, okay, this galaxy is bigger than this galaxy or not. You, you can't actually tell the thing. It's formed of a trillion stars. You can't see the individual so stars. So you need, you need a point of reference. Right, you need, and there, it's, there aren't very many. Um, so what we've latched onto with this particular project is uh, a point of reference that we do know. Um, and that point of reference, so the, the buzzword uh, for us is baryon uh, acoustic oscillations, but all that means is sound waves. Anyway, someone wanted to make it fancy, I guess. Um, but what we're looking at are sound waves. and uh, So there once were sound waves in space? There once were, and so this was when the universe was younger, uh, it was uh, a lot hotter. Uh, the electrons and the protons couldn't actually combine into atoms because the universe was too hot. So it meant that you had this plasma uh, of charged particles. Within this plasma, you could actually propagate sound waves, just like us talking here. And so, so in the very earliest days of the universe, either a ball or a disk, and I'm not sure quite what, with, of plasma, you could have an acoustic phenomena of sound waves propagating through that, through that, that, that uh, early universe. And, and we did. And so you can compute from first principles what would have happened. And what would have happened is you propagate sound waves at something very close to the speed of light divided by root 3 is about the speed of these sound waves in the early universe. And so we know that you had sound waves at that time, uh, not from people speaking, of course. Well, maybe it's the aliens, I don't know. Um, uh, but then there was the, uh, uh, the age of the universe where then all the, the universe cooled off enough that all these electrons could recombine with the protons. Uh, then it's no longer this plasma. The universe becomes transparent. Uh, sound waves stop propagating. They're frozen in wherever they are, and they're frozen in at uh, a distance that we know exactly. So, so, so it's sort of like tire tracks in ice or something to that effect. That they, they, they as the universe reaches this, this moment when the protons and electrons found each other, light escaped. Is that your cosmic background? Yep, that's cosmic, cosmic microwave background. background. The light escapes, and you have these sound waves sort, sort of frozen in the material of the universe. And I gather that, it's, it's my understanding that, that, that they, to a certain extent, shaped the, the structure of today's universe so that you can actually look, look at, with, with proper instruments, you can look at and you can detect these, these uh, oscillations in the structure of galaxies. And, 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 and so that, that's essentially what you're looking for. But, I understand that there's a there's a there, they they talk about this as a cosmic ruler. So, explain explain that a little bit. 
Well, so it's a ruler because we can compute from first principles what that distance is. And so that distance, it's, uh, it's 500 million light years. There's oh, a rather large places. ruler. It's a large ruler. So a galaxy, an individual galaxy is much smaller than that. So over 500 million light years, that spans many galaxies. Uh, so uh, what you're talking about are these uh, ripples in the universe where the ripples in the distribution of galaxies. So it's kind of like the galaxies are your atoms in this case. So if I had a big enough telescope and I could look at, could I actually see one of these things, or is it something that you need uh, computer uh, pattern recognition in order to find? Uh, so uh, it turns out if, uh, if there were not dark matter particles in the universe, this phenomena actually would have been much more prominent. So it, it's, it's kind of too it's bad. It's complicated. Or, it's complicated, but the dark matter kind of wrecked it for us in this case because if, if the universe were only baryons, then these sound waves would have been very wild fluctuations, so of order unity fluctuations even today. And then you'd look out in the universe and you'd see, you'd really see these features strongly. Uh, because of all the dark matter, that's actually damped out the effect of these sound waves relative to all of the matter in the universe so that it's kind of only a few percent effect. So it's, it's not easily visible. So in this three-dimensional map of the universe that you're creating with these baryon oscillations, are they a little bit, little bit like the scale down at the bottom of a map that you see that will tell you how far things are apart? And if, if you're detecting these baryonic acoustic oscillation traces in the universe, at different 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 times in, in the time in the expansion of the universe, you can use that ruler to essentially um, flesh out the map in, in a in a in a way that that makes sense to you folks. No, that's exactly how we're using it. Yeah, so it's it's a ruler. Is that, that clear to everybody? <laughs> it's clear to you, I guess. <laughs> um, so it's a ruler we can place at different ages of the universe because as we look further out, we're looking when the universe was younger, uh, and then we can place this ruler at each of those distances. So, so it, it helps give you that sense of scale. It, it really is an essential part of a three-dimensional map, then, is what? to have that sense of scale that that 500, 500 million light 500 year million light years. ruler gives you. And, and uh, you know, it's certainly beyond my ken to understand this, but I'm starting to understand why the word boss shows up so much. In in, uh, in the description of the the project and the instrument, because this is a, a central part of, of 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 your ability to make this three dimensional map of the universe, which in turn will give us a lot of guidance in understanding the behavior of dark energy. Um, I think we're you're describing to me as a, as a, as a void of information in really understanding what the hell dark energy is, but this instrument. And this project will take us a long way towards, towards that goal. I, it's pretty amazing. Um, we have time for one, maybe one, one more question. Um, um, if this recent expansion was caused by, um, say, the collision of two multiverses, um, would that collision also have injected more matter into our universe? And would that then possibly be dark matter? And would we have any... Are there any theories of that we could detect that the amount of dark matter has changed over time along with the amount of dark energy? Whoa. <laughs> uh, 
My short answer is I don't know. The, uh, uh, but so, so I haven't heard any theory uh, that would, at least today, predict something about baryonic or dark matter changing over the course of the history of the universe. But uh, at the same time, that's, uh, that's not something that anyone has looked at, as far as I know. Well, is, is the hunt for dark energy so wide open that people are open to the idea of multiple universes? It is a, it is a, a term you, you hear batted around these days. Uh, it is, and um, uh, so, uh, well, there are lots of reasons for this, and, and I mean, one of the reasons is, uh, throughout modern history anyway, has been the notion that we don't live in a special place in the world. And so, uh, yeah, so, so an extension of that would be that we don't live in a special place in our universe. We shouldn't live in a special universe, even if there are lots of universes. Um, if we do live in some sort of multiverse where there are different universes that uh, have, you know, the first question is, well, is, is there even any way that those know about each other at all? And they wouldn't today, sort of by definition, or it would be part of the universe. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, if this multiverse um, view of the world is correct, then you, uh, you could certainly imagine that it would have some sort of imprint on the formation of the universe in the first place. So yeah, that, that's as far as I'm willing to go on this anyway. Last question? Uh, b before we, uh, uh, oh, do we have one? No, I'm just. Oh, okay. Uh, b before we go, I w this is uh, this is an experimental format. Um, I, I, um, uh, next week at the same time and same place, uh, uh, Venkat uh, Srinivasan, uh, one of the world's leading experts on batteries, will be here to talk about the future of batteries. And um, I hope that some of you will come to that and that some of you will tell uh, your friends about this, this presentation. And, um, uh, and basically, uh, I just want to thank you for coming here. And I want to thank David Schlegel for, for coming and enlightening us on the hunt for dark energy. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.